0: Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Professor Stephanie Hinnerschitz speaking about her book, A Different Shade of Justice, Asian American Civil Rights in the South, recently published in 2017 by the University of North Carolina Press. Professor Hinnerschitz is Assistant Professor of 20th Century U.S. History at Cleveland State University, where she teaches and researches U.S. immigration history, Asian American history, and political history. Professor Hendershitz received her Ph.D. in American history from the University of Maryland in College Park, her M.A. from Temple University, and her B.A. from Lockhaven University. Her first book was Race, Religion, and Civil Rights, Asian Students on the West Coast, 1900 to 1968, published by Rutgers University Press in 2015. I really enjoyed reading the book and speaking about it with Professor Hendershitz, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies. I'm Ian Shin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Steph Hinnershitz about her new book, A Different Shade of Justice, Asian American Civil Rights in the South. Steph Hinnershitz is Assistant Professor of History at Cleveland State University, where she teaches 20th century U.S. history with a focus on immigration and Asian American history. Steph, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me.
0: Steph, I wonder if we could start uh, the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, So I'm originally from Pennsylvania, and I did my undergrad degree in history at Buckhaven University, which is a small state school. Um, Went on to Temple University to get my master's and then got my PhD from the University of Maryland in 2013. I, in many ways knew that I wanted to be a history major. Um so I I that was kind of my goal starting from undergrad and going all the way through the PhD. But I didn't get interested in the topic of Asian American history um, or Asian immigration until I started my master's degree at Temple. And it was kind of kind of a, a fortunate accident <laughs> that I got led in that direction because I signed up for a research seminar that was thematic. And so it was imperialism, colonialism, and empire. And I had no idea really what that meant for me as an Americanist. So I kind of struggled a little bit, but I became interested in um, Filipino migration to the U.S. and especially Filipino students while they were still under American colonial rule. So I did my master's thesis on that and sort of looked at what the experiences of Filipino students were in the U.S., how it affected them as technically being colonial subjects um, in the Metropole. And my plan was just to kind of keep going with that, with my dissertation, just expand it. But as I did more research, I found a lot of interactions between Filipino students especially Filipino and Christian students and other Asian students so Chinese and Japanese in particular at schools on the west coast like at Berkeley and Stanford and um, University of Washington and I was really interested in the conversations that they were all having that related to their experiences as racial minorities in the US and what they what they did to counteract that by forming these different organizations and these different Groups, and so that led to the dissertation and thinking about how these students were early civil rights activists. Um, you know, in the twenties and the thirties, well before before the sixties in the Asian rights movement, and that pushed me, I guess, in the direction that I'm that I'm now. If I t- describe my res- uh, research trajectory, it would really be at looking at how Asian American history is not. Sort of the separate narrative from other narratives. So I'm always interested in how the experiences of Asian Americans and Asian immigrants shape some of the more traditional stories that we know. So especially like civil rights and immigration and political history. And so that's what moved me into into this direction. Um, started off, like I said, not not really knowing anything about Asian American immigration or Asian American history. And now it's, it's very important and very fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the um, goals that I think a lot of us have who work in Asian American history, right. Is to sort of uh, make sure that Asian American history is front and center in, in discussions about civil rights in the U S immigration, certainly and, and political history. Um, so i think I think uh, you have lots of folks who who uh, are are on the same uh, bandwagon as you are in that, in that regard um, so then uh your your first book was on uh, uh, student civil rights activism on on the west coast. How did you pivot from that to uh, working on uh, civil rights in the south
1: um, so <laughs> when i when I was on the the job market um, when I was still in grad school i always envisioned that if, if I was fortunate enough to get, to get a job, to get a tenure track job, that I would more than likely end up at some place along the West coast. Um, you know, I, I, figured if, again, if I was fortunate enough, it would probably be someplace that had, you know, more of like a demographic demand for Asian American history that reflected some of the demographics. Um, so you can imagine how <laughs> shocked I was when I, found out that my first job was going to be in Valdosta, Georgia. So I got down there, and I had my my project of turning my dissertation into a book, but then I was really thinking about how am I going to continue, you know, what I really like to do, and I really love to learn more about um, Asian American history, how Asian immigrants and Asian Americans sort of shape and influence and are influenced by um, racial structures in the U.S., But I didn't know how I was going to get (laughs) to the West Coast, you know, in terms of funding for the project. So I was kind of in a little bit of a funk because I I just really thought that I wasn't going to find anything that would interest me that would actually be doable. Um, So one day I was just just kind of bored at work uh, during office hours, and I just went to uh, LexisNexis and decided to put in... Um, I think I put in Asian immigrants, um, just to see what would, what would pop up. And then I narrowed it down to Georgia because I was actually thinking about seeing if there was some way that I could do like a journal article that dealt with, um, Asian Americans or Asian immigrants in Georgia. And I found a a law case or a legal case involving a uh, Filipino man who was accused of rape in Atlanta and I found his appeal that went up to the Supreme Court of Georgia, and it was so interesting because there was all kinds of language that he was using, uh, claiming that his rights as an American, an American subject, had been violated by this very racist legal system. And this was in the 1930s in Atlanta. And so when I read that, I'm like, "Wow, this is really this is really interesting." Like, this is a story about racism and discrimination um, and segregation in the South that we don't often hear about, you know, how it connects to Asian immigrants and Asian Americans and Filipinos and empire and imperialism. So then I started to dig around a little bit more and found a lot of cases where Asian immigrants used, uh, whether it's their citizenship or their lack of citizenship or their immigrant status, to try and, and push back against uh, legal discrimination in the South. So it it really started out, I was, I was pretty lucky to to find this case that hasn't really been discussed and then push push a little bit more and see where it took me. So before I knew it, um, I had you know this book where it was this story that I had never really heard of about how Asian Americans lived in the South and how they how they pushed back against, against Jim Crow, basically.
0: I think that the thing that impresses me most about what you've just said is how, how productive you seem to be during office hours. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that that is something that I take away from myself. Um, but I think picking up on that point of, of finding a case, right. That, that, um, as you said, you, you hadn't really seen anything on, you know, I, I, I wanted to start maybe by, by asking a little bit about the historiography. Right. And I think, I think, um, uh, there's a, been a movement for for some time now to sort of push Asian American history um, outside of the coasts, or I suppose maybe inside of the coasts, uh, to the Midwest and and to the South, um, and it's still an ongoing project. And there, there's some great uh, works uh, that have been published in the last ten years, ten fifteen years. Um, but but you know, to me, the, the question that I'd love for you to, to to get your thoughts on is is why you think. Um, Asian Americans are largely absent in the historiography um, of of the South, of Southern history, and I think you know because one that's one of the things this book really does this, is so exciting for is that you know it, it's important not only for Asian American history but Southern history uh, and uh, and and the history of civil rights and legal studies. Um, So, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you see the reasons for uh, the absence uh, of relative absence of Asian Americans in Southern and civil rights history.
1: Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. I actually think there's probably about three three big reasons. I would say the first one, and this this might be sort of an easy grab, but just demographically speaking, numbers wise, when I was at Valdosta and I, you know, would talk to my colleagues or even my students because they were always interested in, in what I was doing and I was interested in what they were doing. And I would say, oh, you know, I'm looking into the experiences of uh, Asian immigrants in the South. And their reaction would be like, really, that's so random. What were there, like five Asian Americans in the South? And I'm like, well, no, there was more than that. But I think, like, there's always, like, like you had said, there, there's always been this focus on the coast. Right, and especially the West Coast, where there are Asian immigrants and Asian Americans um in larger numbers, in larger communities. And so when you shift away from that, there's a there's a question of well, what kind of impact um could they have in an area where they didn't make up, you know, a large portion of the population for many years. But if you dig a little bit deeper, um there are definitely uh, pockets of, of Asian American communities in many southern states, like Mississippi, for example. And there's there's been a, quite a bit written on Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans living in Mississippi. So when you get down to that level and you look at the communities, right, and then what kind of influence those communities have, um, you know, to their neighbors, to who's, who's living around them, whether it's uh, white Americans, black Americans, but how do they perceive um, these newcomers, I think it, it kind of shatters the idea that you can't study a group of people um, simply because they're not a large number of, of the population. And I don't think that's the only reason why, but I, I think it's a little a little surprising, especially when you talk about, you know, the late 19th century and the early 20th century, for many people to see that there's anything really of consequence when Asian Americans might not be a large part of the, of the population in the South. Um, the other thing I think that definitely contributes, and this, this was something I struggled with a little bit when I was first thinking about the book, um, is that these cases uh, that, I, that I focus on, they're not necessarily part of a civil rights movement. They're very individualized. Um, Many of them focus on, you know, single families who they might not necessarily be fighting for the rights of all Chinese Americans in Mississippi or um, all Vietnamese immigrants. They're, They're concerned about getting their own kid into the best school, right? Or they're concerned about recovering damages from property loss in their case. And so when there's not a visible movement in a region of the country where that's historically been so important um, when you think about African Americans and civil rights I think that's another that's another reason why this this topic tends to get overlooked a little bit because there's nothing necessarily coherent about that And I did when I was writing struggled a little bit when I was researching about what do I make of of all these different cases are these just, Sort of random, disconnected events. Um, are these communities just completely disconnected? And maybe they weren't speaking to each other directly. But if you pull back and, and take a wide, a wide angle, you can see that there is something going on there. So I think a lack of, of a movement like we're used to seeing when it comes to whether it's civil rights in the South or even later on Asian rights on the West Coast in the '60s. I think that 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 obscures that history a little bit. And then I, I also think the last thing that is very important for me and really interesting is the idea of citizenship, and how many of of the the people um, the chinese Americans for example Filipinos um, who used the courts in the south, they did everything they could to try and argue um, against certain rights that citizenship offers. So when they went to the courts, they weren't saying I'm demanding my rights um, because I'm a citizen. They're saying the opposite, right? They're saying I'm demanding my rights because of treaties between China and America and you're violating them," right? Or um, Filipinos who they know they're not citizens, but they are American. So they're, they have a, a special place. So I, I think it, it also gets a little confusing with how do you, you know, how do you fit these different legal battles into a story about citizenship and civil rights when many weren't claiming the rights that citizenship offered. So I think if you take demographics, um, sort of a scattered legal approach to rights, and then also um, the lack of citizenship, uh, three things that were, you know, really important for the narrative of civil rights and discrimination in the South, that might explain why this topic has been overlooked for so long.
0: Yeah, and, and that last point is, I think, something that, again, also touches on uh, a trend in, in the field, which is to connect up Asian American history with the history of the United States and the world or U.S. foreign relations, and to see these two things as as fundamentally connected, right, that, that the way in which uh, uh, the United States interacts with um, countries like uh, China and Japan or territories like the Philippines end up influencing the treatments of those people here in the United States. Um, so perhaps... Um, We can dive into the book a little bit, Um, and I'd love to start by talking uh, a little bit about some of the larger concepts that you draw upon to frame the discussion of civil rights in the South. Uh, you have in, in the introduction, you, you talk about the interstitial identity of Asian Americans in the South. You talk about, uh, um, Omi and Winant's sort of theory of racial formation, um, and also the idea that there are multiple Souths. I wondered if you could, uh, maybe expand on each of those a little bit to give our listeners, uh, an understanding of what some of the frameworks are that inform, uh, your, your, uh, structure of, uh, this project overall.
1: Right. Um, yeah, so I... I was interested in responding to some some of the works that have been written about Asian Americans in the South and especially this identity that is – not only somehow in between black and white legally, but, you know, as Leslie Bowes says, it's more, it's more inter, interstitial. It's not in between one or the other, but it kind of moves and it's flexible and it weaves depending on, on where you go throughout the South. So I think the idea of multiple Souths connects to um, this interstitial identity that is very malleable. Um, and in some ways that can be a benefit. Um for Asian Americans, and in other ways, it can sort of hinder their efforts to adapt and and have a good life and settle down so i was I read a lot of a lot of the work on um especially Chinese in Mississippi, I would say probably of of all the the topics and the subjects when you discuss Asian Americans in the South. I think the Chinese in the Mississippi Delta are uh, one of the most most studied and most covered and I, you know, I got that, that there was an identity that was unique um, and not easily defined, but it seemed like that's where a lot of the studies ended. You know, like there, there was this unique, there was this unique identity. And then I was interested in the like, yeah, but what? So, you know, you can have this identity that's malleable when it flows, but what happens when, you know, sort of the rubber meets the road and, these immigrants go up for the courts and then there's, there are legal codes in place and there has to be a decision about, you know, what ethnic group do, you know, do Chinese Americans fall into? Um, are Chinese Americans colored or are they, um, you know, quote, yellow, like one of the, one of the terms that was used, or are they are oriental. Is that the same thing as colored? So that framework of using interstitial identity and then also, um, the idea of like race creation and race making and unmaking. I was really, really interested in that, but I wanted to see what, what the end result of that was. And of course there's no end result. It's constantly being made and unmade and remade, but I wanted to see what happened when an Asian American tried to take that interstitial identity, that malleable identity and put it before the court. You know, I wanted to see like, so what, how is the court, Going to come down on this? How are they going to How are they going to look at this? And and in many cases, it really did depend on not even on a you know on a state by state level, but from one school district to the other, you know, from one town to the other. That's how that's how fluid this <laughs> this identity was. Um, for instance, in, in uh, the chapter about school segregation, talking about you know Filipinos and and Chinese in Kentucky and how in different school districts. They would be seen as completely different, you know. And there's uh, examples of Chinese students being identified as Chinese or colored in one school district, and in the next, you know, maybe just a couple towns over, not, you know, they're they're able to go and attend school with white children. So I I really liked sort of beginning the book with talking about what this meant, what kind of identity Asian Americans had in the South, how it was so flexible, and then. What happens when something that is quite flexible goes up against um, the court, and then the courts can take on different, different looks depending on where you you are in the south. So that's that's what I wanted to do with the introduction: is is get down um, some of the historiographical contributions of different scholars, um, not just historians, but others as well, and sort of move move from there.
0: That's wonderful, and I I, I love the idea of thinking about how the interstitial identity. Uh, might, might change or what happens to it when the rubber meets the road. And you do um, such a lovely job of, of uh, talking about, uh, in five different chapters, you know, ways in which the rubber does meet the road, right? So just for our listeners in Chapter 1, talking about alien land laws. Uh, in Chapter 2, as you already alluded to, talking about education and, and segregation. Chapter 3 um, is about... Uh, sex and marriage and miscegenation. Uh, and then chapters four and five are sort of about entrepreneurial rights. Um, uh, I think is the, is the phrase that you use. And in each of those cases, um, the rubber meets the road, right? In terms of, uh, Asian Americans, uh, and their identity, but also their legal status. So I'd love to, let's maybe turn to, to each of those chapters now and talk, um, a little bit about, Uh, about them. Um, And let's begin with with chapter one, when the rubber meets the road for um, alien land laws, which I think a lot of people may be more familiar with, again, from the perspective of the 1913 uh, uh, Alien Land Act in, in California, but you tell us the story of of these land acts in the South, including a case in Arkansas where it actually gets voided and, and declared unconstitutional. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about about that story.
1: Yeah, so I would, I, I mean, probably out of out of all the chapters in this book, um, I, I f- feel like the the first chapter is one that is um pretty unique in terms of just just what you had mentioned that alien land laws anti-alien land laws have, have been a, a huge topic right for studying the West Coast and I was shocked to find <laughs> that they also existed in the South and then you know states going as far as to amend their constitutions to prohibit aliens ineligible for citizenship, um, which is like a, a code right during the twenties for basically um, Asians who cannot naturalize. So when I discovered that, that to me was, was a pretty good indication that even though the numbers of Japanese Americans or Chinese Americans um, living in places like Arkansas or Florida, right? Louisiana, we're not, we're not huge, but still that, threat was enough to convince uh, lawmakers to, again, sort of not just pass a law, but actually amend the Constitution and amend property rights to um, put into place mechanisms to, if they wanted to pass um, land laws down the line that would specifically target certain groups, um, then they could. And so this is another good example of, uh, from a legislative sense, you know, there's Initially, um, Japanese Americans, Japanese immigrants, were were welcomed in Florida and Louisiana because of the, the knowledge they were um, claimed to have in terms of how to diversify crops and to help rebuild um, southern you know the southern landscape after the Civil War to try and reintroduce new farming techniques. And they were welcomed, and you had people in Louisiana basically you know writing into congressmen asking that they be allowed to naturalize and become American citizens, which is totally different in a lot of ways than what you hear on the West Coast. So at first I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, this is a happy story. This is wonderful. And then no, because um, what happens is that that same kind of fear of a potential growing population sort of takes over in the South and there is a, a sharp turn against these groups that were once welcomed, um, where now they are, they're suspicious, and so there are, you know, whether it's in Louisiana and Florida where they amend the constitution, um, to put into place if, if there needs to be laws passed, they will, they will do that. But then you move up to Arkansas, um, and there you have a case of, um, a Chinese man who will go to the court, um, and the court will rule in, his favor, right? And in Arkansas, um, they will actually declare the, the alien land law to be unconstitutional. So, placing there, they place a lot of emphasis on the rights of, of property owners more generally um, to be able to have their, their basic rights uh, protected and to have access to their property protected. So, I think in the first chapter, it's a pretty interesting case because you have all of these anti alien, anti-Asian measures. But then when it gets right down to it, um, you have a, uh, you know, you have a Chinese man in Arkansas who is able to go before the court, um, sort of prove that he is industrious and prove that this is a, this is an example of sort of local governments overstepping their boundaries. And then eventually that law will be, will be overturned and it will be declared unconstitutional. So it's, it really is pretty flexible, um, in terms of, of what happens. So in some ways it's more that interstitial identity can continues and it really depends on sort of proving your worth. Um, are you a productive member of the community? If, if many could prove that, yeah, you know, they're entrepreneurs and they're a vital part of, of the community and what they do, then there might be some leniency there. Uh, but yeah the the alien land laws in the south i think that chapter was very surprising to me i i didn't initially expect to to find something like that because i was so used to it being a west coast problem um where many asian americans did live so it was really was really surprising to me and then as sort of a side note the other thing i i really like about about this chapter and this topic is that um in florida's state constitution that that language from, you know, the 1926 amendment is still there. So uh, Asian Asian American rights groups tried to have that language removed in 08. It went up on a ballot for Florida um, state citizens to vote on to remove it, sort of like a, of a symbolic measure, like this is the history behind this. We should remove it because this is wrong and can't be enforced, but just for good measure, take it off. And, and what happened um, was that, Florida residents um, voted against removing it because they saw the phrase aliens ineligible for citizenship and they automatically assumed um, illegal or undocumented immigrants um, coming in from Mexico and elsewhere. And so they said, no, absolutely not. You know, undocumented immigrants should not be allowed to own property. And so I thought that was a really good example of how this history of Asian Americans in the South is just so overlooked and how Little people know about it. Like they didn't even know where this phrase um, came from in the Constitution. So I think that's another example as issues of, of politics and discrimination and racism against Asian Americans today uh, continue to to play out. Um, thinking about their identity in the South and how it has changed, or or maybe you know hasn't changed, lends some pretty important ideas to to think about.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great. Great point. And, you know, you talk about this this Florida case, I think, in, in the conclusion um, to the book and and um, the, the way in which, again, uh, it is not just a, a story in the past for a specific group of people in a specific part of the country, but something that continues to come up time and time again. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you were talking about with the Applegate v. Luke case, which is the one that uh, voided the, the Arkansas uh, anti-alien land law, um, because it struck me a little bit in connecting it with, apart from your, uh, 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 a portion of your second chapter on challenges to segregated schools, um, that especially when I'm thinking about the discussion you have on the Chinese in Augusta, Georgia, right and the case that they make for why they uh, or or that or that their white neighbors make on their behalf as to why they should not be uh, uh made to attend uh different schools um that it's a similar kind of reasoning in terms of their being productive citizens uh and and sort of uh you know well behaved uh in 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 a phrase right in a in a sort of 1960s phrase uh, a model minority um so i wonder if if um you know, we might pivot to talking about chapter two, but also if you might say a little bit about whether or not you see this kind of logic, even if it's not quite the the sort of, you know, the phrase that we use today in, in contemporary terms, that there's sort of maybe a historical antecedents of this kind of model minority logic working in places like Arkansas and Georgia uh, when it comes to, uh, treatments of Asian Americans for property ownership and education.
1: Oh yeah, no, definitely. Like, like you had mentioned, even though we're not, uh, using, uh, model minority or that identity specifically, you know, in the twenties or the thirties, it's, it's definitely there. And, Based on based on my research and what I wrote about, I would say this is very much um, a survival strategy for for Chinese Americans living in Augusta, living in Arkansas um, to sort of court that that identity, that perception that their neighbors have of them as being, uh, you know, they're they're clean, they're moral, they're well behaved. Um, you know, they want to send their kids to school. They run businesses like these are these are the ideal people you want living in this community. Uh, making trying to make sure that they they cultivate that identity was a way for them to maintain this this fluid position that they had, where you know, in a in Augusta and in Georgia, they weren't claiming to be white. And I think that's something too important to sort of emphasize in a lot of these cases. you know, no, no one was really claiming to be white. They were claiming to be, um, not black or not colored, right. Or, uh, Chinese to embrace like a specific ethnic identity. And all of the, what all of those things did was separate them, um, from the negative stereotypes and the negative perceptions of, of African Americans in Southern communities. So it really was, um, this was an opportunity to take that, to take an identity that, uh, differentiated them from African Americans and to, to kind of run with it. You know, and to, to see, to see what would happen and to see if that would be a way that they would be able to, you know, I get from, (laughs) from the sense of doing a lot of this research that they would be able to be left alone for the most part. You know, they could send their kids to whatever school they wanted to live their lives, um, do their business, have their good relationships with their, with their white neighbors and just live the life that they, that they, that they wanted, um, and that they wanted to hold on to. So, There is there is definitely sort of a a seed here in the South of of that model minority identity that in a lot of ways was almost placed upon them by their white neighbors where they they created this space for them that wasn't white. It wasn't black. It was, um, you know, not black, which was its own category in and of itself and then that's what worked. I mean, that's sort of what, all right, that's, if that's the line you got to work with, um, you know, then, then many Chinese in in Augusta and elsewhere agreed to do that, to try and and walk that line to not make any waves. Now, of course, uh, you know, years later, when you get into, um, issues with the African-American civil rights movement in the South, just like elsewhere, that, that identity is, is going to work against them in terms of, Building relationships with other minorities in the South. Um, so, you know, not always the case on the West Coast, but something something that's very unique in the South is is just how well that model minority identity worked for many um, Asians in Mississippi or in Georgia, in terms of really separating them from from African Americans. So, with with school segregation and business, you definitely can make the argument that, that you see this, this model minority identity and to think of it as emerging, um, you know, from some of these cases in the South, I think also challenges our, uh, chronology of where this, where this term begins, how it's used, even if it's not specifically used in that sense. But I, I think thinking about it as being kind of a, a Southern concept that's used in cases like this is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah and and the thing that I uh, am also interested in uh, fr- from this perspective is, is how effective it is in potentially causing tensions uh between you know African Americans in the South and Asian Americans in the South. You alluded to that happening in the 1960s when it gets in the way of building interracial coalitions. Do you in the 1920s and 1930s when you're looking at the the issue of uh education and segregation do you see uh, very many tensions uh, arising between uh, Black communities and Asian American communities in the South as this I- ideology is kind of forming?
1: Yeah, I, there there are sort of strands of it that strands of it that you can see, and um, so there's there's one in particular, and that that relates to interracial relationships. So there are plenty of stories, especially of Chinese in Mississippi in the Delta, who you know, if they engage in any sort of romantic or sexual relationships with African-Americans, they will pretty much be shunned by, by their communities. And they that's something that is in, incredibly looked down upon. And so there's this cultivation of um, not intermarrying with African-Americans. And that's something that in the Delta and then also in Florida um, with some Japanese-Americans and, and in Georgia, this is something that's sort of picked up and And um, internalized not only by Asian-Americans, but also by African-Americans who see for decades just this cultural turn against um, interracial mixing. I I mean, in some states, uh, there were, you know, anti-miscegenation laws that prohibited this. But in other ways, this was very much a a cultural thing, trying to maintain that identity. Um, And then growing out of school segregation, too, when there were so many Chinese who did not want to send their children to, um, colored schools or schools that primarily served African-Americans, that was another message that was getting sent out that not only are, are they not going to interact with them, but they don't want to, to help that cause, right? Very individualistic. This is, this is a family focused affair. We're going to help our families and not necessarily contribute to the larger civil rights movement of African-Americans. And then, um, you know, in, in Augusta and elsewhere in Georgia, when you get to the, the late 60s, there's going to be boycotts of Chinese businesses. In Mississippi, there's going to be African-American boycotts of Chinese groceries. And so this has all been a long time coming because you could argue out of necessity, in a lot of ways, um, these different Asian groups had to try and, and take that interstitial identity and work it for their own but it's going to create tensions for um, really, I mean, sort of generations to come after that.
0: Right. The the, the point you're making about um, how it gets in the way of interracial relationships um, and, and and marriage is is interesting in the context of the third chapter, um, and and maybe we'll pivot to that now. And the third chapter, the title is "A Love That Could Not Be Known." um, sex marriage and Southern law is interesting because in some ways the, 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 case studies you bring up in that chapter are the opposite of that, right? There, there are sort of examples of people of Asian Americans who do, uh, make a case for, uh, their right to marry, uh, somebody of their choice who may not be, uh, uh, who either is white or, uh, uh um, and, 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 and so, um, the, the explanation that they use, uh, I think this is where we see a little bit of a movement away from that model minority, uh, logic, because it's a, a different, right, sort of explanation that they offer as to why they might, uh, be able to, to engage in these interracial relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, you're right. These are, there's, there's two cases that I, that I focus on, um. One involving um, a Filipino man who's accused of rape, and then the other involving um, a Chinese man who uh, marries a white woman from Virginia, and then she has the marriage annulled, and this uh, sparks a, a Supreme Court case. Um, so with the, with the the rape accusation case in Georgia, so this happens in the 1930s right outside of Atlanta, here the, the man who was accused of rape... Um, he is he is arguing not not only that he did not um rape this, this young woman. She was fourteen years old at the time, Rosa May Clower, he's saying he he did not rape her. Um but his his entire really like his entire argument for for his innocence rests on his violations as an American subject. So the violations on his rights as a colonial subject living in America. Um, so it's it's interesting because he's not directly challenging the rape charges. He, he is indirectly doing that, but he's more trying to make the point that he was never given access to a fair trial um, because of remarks that were made during the initial trial when uh, the prosecutor brought up all kinds of issues of imperialism and colonialism and anti-Filipino sentiment. So with that with that case, it's it's really not so much a case about an interracial relationship um, as it is about how interracial relationships were viewed in the South and then how Filipino men in this case, it's a pretty unique case how they get drawn into this, like this whole discourse, this whole Um, web of discussion around interracial marriages or not interracial marriages, interracial relationships and accusations of rape and how, uh, he takes, he takes this, this road. That's a little bit different than what we see in other cases. And then in the second, um, so this, this man, uh, is a Chinese sailor and he, his case is interesting. And a lot of people wouldn't touch it initially because his wife, um, Ruby, she, she wants to get a divorce from him because she, for a lot of different reasons, you know, she's, she claims that she can't live her life anymore, waiting for, waiting for him to get citizenship as a spouse, his life as a sailor, has him moving around too much. So she files for a divorce and uh, the judge doesn't give her a divorce, but annuls the marriage. Um, and says this marriage was never valid in the first place because of the anti-miscegenation laws in Virginia, which were very harsh at the time. And so he he doesn't necessarily say, like, that he still loves his wife. This isn't a loving v. loving case, right? I mean, this is not, or loving v. Virginia, this is not someone who who claims, like, I really love my wife and I want to be with her forever and this is a great injustice. He's basically arguing that, his marriage should not be annulled because it, it if it is then he's not going to be able to um stay in the u s as a as a permanent president and so there it's not really so much about love as it is about immigration status you know what is his status here in the u s and it's very much tied to maintaining his relationship with his wife and he argues very similar to um, the Filipino man Annunciacio that that his status as a non-American is really important to consider, right? That he is, he's above these anti-miscegenation laws. The state of Virginia is interfering with his own rights, you know, as a Chinese national. So they're taking all kinds of different ways to use these opportunities that involve um, rape and sex and, and all these different issues that go up for the court and use them to argue for their rights as non-citizens,
0: Right. So this is going back to the point you were making at the very beginning of our conversation about how citizenship isn't always the framing for civil rights. Right. That that, oftentimes, uh, you know, people invoke their status as uh, U.S. nationals or as foreign nationals in order to argue for for equitable treatment before the law in this particular case for uh, marriage and, and, and relations, uh, relationships, um, which I think brings us quite naturally to uh, to the fourth chapter of um, uh, about uh, uh, the, the civil rights history of Vietnamese Americans um, and the concept of human rights in, in Texas. Again, you know, sort of moving away from this idea of citizenship um, and and towards ideas of refugee status and universal human rights. So this is Chapter 4, From the Gulf to the Courts of Vietnamese Americans and Human Rights in Texas. Um, and you talk about uh, a really sort of heartening case uh, in, in this Current political moment, right where where uh, the the Vietnamese Fishermen's Association actually takes on the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan in 1981. So, can you can you give us a little bit more? Maybe give us some hope for the uh, for the current moment.
1: <laughs> yeah. So i I will I will begin by saying that you know when when I was writing this chapter, um, you know, in 2015, so well before last November, um, and obviously well before now, I never would have really expected that it would have been so in line with sort of current events. So yeah, it is, it is actually very heartening um, to look at this. And also I think it's important to to look a little bit more about how the Vietnamese were able to do this. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of lessons that can be learned about coalition building and how do you approach such a massive topic like you know basic human rights? Take, taking on the Klan, <laughs> with which at this time was huge, um, and to have it be you know these newly arrived Vietnamese who are fleeing from all the wreckage of the war, you know, and they are they are being. Uh, brought here with the assistance of the government, they find themselves in Texas, of all places, right? And and there are many who don't know the first thing about shrimping or fishing, so they need to learn all this on their own. And then they're brought face to face with the Klan of of all organizations, you know, like the Klan. And it's such a there's such a deep history in the South there that I thought it was it was fascinating that the group that will take them on in in such a a, a strong media presence way would be these refugees. And they, they do it in a couple different ways. So they they work with, um, the Southern poverty law center. So, uh, Morris reaches out and well, they actually reach out to him and he sees this as an opportunity to sort of finally go after the Klan in a very organized and orchestrated way. So he helps them with their case. And on one hand, um, you know, they, they argue with his assistance that the clan is Giving them trauma, like re-making them relive trauma that they had just tried to escape. They had been brought to the United States to live here um, and feel safe and protected, and just the opposite is, happen- is happening. So when clan members um, in Texas burn their boats and burn Vietnamese and effigy, you know these are these are all instances that both uh, Ds and Vietnamese American fishermen bring up as these are examples of they are threatening us and they're threatening our. Mental well-being and basic protection and safety are are rights that are human rights. And especially as refugees, you know, they're basically saying your country brought us here, so now you need to up and, uh, uphold your end of the bargain. Um, that's not necessarily the argument that that flies in the courts, though. Which is okay. That's a, that could be a little disheartening because you would hope that there would be some kind of agreement um, that. What the Klan is doing and has been doing for so many years by this point is bad. Um, but what's actually able to work is looking at some of the business codes in Texas and actually, ironically, um, <laughs> some of the weapons codes in Texas. So, uh, you know, for example, the Klan when they go on their boat rides, you know, in the Gulf, and they're they're brandishing weapons and guns, and they're you know parading around with them and they're training their own men, um, had to be militia, militia men against, you know, against anyone who they deem as a threat, you know, and in this case, Vietnamese, they're violating basic Texas codes about, uh, not being able to parade around with your guns a blazing, right? apparently that is a, a code in Texas. So that's good to know. But they were walking around and, and doing these things. And so that was finally something that they would get called on. And then also, um, really brilliant strategy by both the Vietnamese and Morris Dees was framing this in a business sense and saying that uh, the Klan was basically trying to create a monopoly on fishing in the South uh, by using other white fishermen and trying to force the Vietnamese out of the business using all kinds of different uh, tactics and techniques. So basically um, violating the Sherman Antitrust Act and all other sort of business codes in Texas that adjoined to that. So the Vietnamese are able to uh, get an injunction, um, against the Klan and push back against them. And it is this, it's a victory for human rights. You know, they're arguing again, not that they're citizens, but because they have basic human rights to safety. But the thing that really ends up helping them are these different laws that the Klan violates that maybe aren't quite so, um, you know, maybe aren't quite so deep. They don't they don't touch on kind of warm and fuzzy feelings, but it's an excellent example of like how do you go at these battles with like real precision, right? I mean, what are points that can stick? Unfortunately, the points that that stuck were not that the Klan was a terrorist organization, right? And they're and they're uh, traumatizing these Vietnamese refugees. What stuck was well, they're doing things they shouldn't be doing with their firearms, and they're not good businessmen. So, eh, right. I guess that you, you can take away from that uh, what you will. But it's it's a way that this group of refugees, um, with the help of, of the Southern Poverty Law Center, was able to to attack this racist, um, you know, white supremacist organization that had been terrorizing the South and really the the country for, um, you know, like almost 100 years by this point.
0: Right, right the the idea that you can find different kinds of means uh, or or more precise means to go after a particular civil rights problem, then also comes up in in your fifth chapter right and 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 this brings us to to the end of the book the fifth chapter takes us into uh, into the 80s getting down to business in Dixie. Indian-American hotel owners and entrepreneurial rights. Um, So again, we have uh, sort of this idea of uh, business as a right or or, or running a business as a a right uh, that someone should have that cannot be violated. Um... But in in this particular chapter, you talk about a different kind of strategy um, that maybe is a little different from the the sort of court-based litigation, right? Um, and and that is now through legislative uh, uh, avenues uh, in order to get at this issue of prejudice. Um, so how do we? How does the book finish on this idea of of uh, a legislative solution? for civil rights challenges for Indian American hotel owners in the 1980s.
1: So in this chapter, um, what the Indian American hotel owners were, were really struggling with. And I, and I did some, some oral interviews, which are really fascinating. Um, they were struggling as businessmen, right. With this idea of how do you, how do you uphold ideas of the free market? Right. And, and, free business practices and the reasons why many came to the United States that couldn't have those same opportunities, um, in India, or they, they migrated from the West coast over down to the South where all these, there were all these opportunities as these small mom and pop hotels and motels were going under. Um, you know, so they, they very much believed in the power of entrepreneurship to improve one's life. So on one hand, how do you uphold that? The freedom, that's there as a business owner, but on the other hand, recognize that there was a deep level of prejudice um, that showed in a, in a lot of different things that they encountered primarily like insurance discrimination or not being able to obtain um, a franchise from a bigger organization like days in. So there was a real dilemma. Um, You know, how do you maintain those personal business freedoms or those entrepreneurial rights? While also trying to get to these these deep structural issues of prejudice, um, and prejudice was something that that they really focused on. Uh, not so much legal discrimination, but how do you end prejudice, which is a a huge question and, a, and an ongoing battle. So you can't. The argument here is that you can't uh, necessarily take every act of prejudice and bring it before the courts. So that's something that a lot of these early Indian American hotel owners emphasize at the time. And then also in their interviews that you, you simply can't do that. It's difficult to try and prove sometimes because they respected the right of a business owner to refuse business to um, whomever they wanted for whatever reason. So they had to try and think about ways to protect business interests. And so in order to do that, they don't use the courts. Um, they don't directly challenge those things. Instead, what they do is they work through legislation to try and create acts and laws that will make the playing field more level. Um, you know, in terms of protecting the rights of franchise owners, uh, which is which is a very common concept today. But really, it's it's Indian American hotel owners who are at the forefront of this, at the forefront of this, and especially those from the South, where they they're not going to take the angle that their rights are being violated um, as Indian Americans or Asian Americans. They take a a different route and say their rights as franchisees are being violated. And if you do that, their argument was that you you cast a much wider net, right? And you can cover a lot of different ground and you don't necessarily have to – go into the court every single time that you encounter a, pro- a problem. Instead, try and create a situation through legislative processes and and organizing with other groups um, that will that will lay a groundwork for, for more development in a more even-handed manner. So that was something that really, I found really interesting. It, it was this new idea of the rights of an entrepreneur to uh, simultaneously be able to run their business as they would see fit, but then also... To be able to participate openly in the free market, and and their arguments, uh, time and again, were really this is this is not about discrimination as it is about prejudice. You can't legislate prejudice away. Um, the best you can do is try and create fair business practices for everyone. So I just I really love that because I never really thought. Of this before, I had no idea of this kind of concept or the kind of struggles that these um, these businessmen encountered. But I thought it was a an interesting way to sort of end the book and think about to think about how things have changed um, for Asian Americans in the South and how their their different strategies were uh, tried and tested and sort of where where we are left today.
0: Yeah, and and you do such a good job of sort of bringing it almost to. You know, I think in, in one place you call it sort of this post civil rights kind of conversation, right? Um that, that uh uh the discourse has kind of evolved and, and how do we evolve along with it. Um and it's it's you know, it's important again to note, um, to the point that some people might make of, you know, oh Asian Americans in the South, how many could there be? Five, you know, that as you write in, in, in this chapter, you know, I I did not realize that that um You know, the trade group, right, the the Asian American Hotel Owners Association now has 14,000 members and that Indian American hoteliers actually make up half, more than half of this hospitality industry, which is just astounding. So this is by no means a small story. You know, it's it's actually uh, demographically quite um, certainly economically as well. Quite, quite significant. Yeah, this. So, I I really appreciate the the opportunity to talk with you about this book, because it's you know it covers so much ground. You know, the, a long twentieth century look at civil rights um, and and at so many different issue areas from uh, marriage and miscegenation laws to education and segregation to uh, business and land ownership. You know, I, I wonder if there was any part in in your research in which you came across residential segregation, since that's such a huge issue in talks, uh, in discussions of civil rights, um, was that at all an issue for Asian Americans in the South residential segregation?
1: It was, it was an issue. Um, I did not. So in, in sort of the cases that I focused on and th- you know, this is by no means an, an exhaustive study. Um, I did not encounter or see any legal battles or any legal strategies taken, um, against any, any kind of restrictive housing covenants or anything of that nature. Um, in fact, when I was, when I was doing the research for the, so the the chapter about Vietnamese and, um, Vietnamese refugees and then Indian American hotel owners, they described housing discrimination in a more, uh, you know, we would definitely call it like, yeah, this is this is legalized discrimination. But the way they described it in more of a social or like a cultural sense, um, that there would be, you know, landowners who would not uh, rent to refugees. And they would cite purposes of, you know, lack of steady income, things of that nature. Um, same, li- same thing with uh, Indian American hotel owners. They had a, a difficult time. In many cases, trying to buy their property. Um, one explanation that would be given by, uh, hotel owners who were looking to sell would be like, well, you would move your whole family in, in there and then, uh, it would do damage to the property and it would drive down property value and everyone else in the neighborhood or around wouldn't, wouldn't like that. So there was, I did encounter some descriptions of this, but, in the research that i did um in terms of legal cases i i didn't look quite quite as far into that but but i do have um some examples of a, in a very broad sense reasons that people gave for why they couldn't rent or sell property um that were sort of disguised in these very economic terms. But if you, if you look at it, it really does reflect a lot of the same trends in terms of racial discrimination when it comes to housing that are going on, um, you know, all over America at the time.
0: Right. Right. So a lot of these issues are actually quite, quite, um, quite linked. Um, well, Steph, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, before, before I let you go though, I want to ask you a couple of sort of final concluding questions. Um, the first is to just uh, ask if you have any anything you've read or watched recently related to Asian American studies that you would recommend to our listeners.
1: Yeah, so I actually, um, a couple of months ago, I actually had the opportunity to uh, review a new book that came out about Chinese exclusion and Reconstruction. Um, it's called Racial Reconstruction. Uh, I think it's Black Inclusion, Chinese Exclusion, and Citizenship, and it's by hope I'm saying her ni- her name wrong. Ed um Eddie Edley Wong. Um she's at the University of Maryland and she's a literature scholar. But I really liked this book. Um I believe it was published by NYU because she looks at she looks at reconstruction through literature, um, but then more specifically literature that describes these uh situations, these encounters between Chinese immigrants and African Americans um, on the West Coast, in the South, in Cuba. Um, but but basically, her, her larger argument is that when we think about Reconstruction, we've really got to expand it in a couple different ways. So we need to have it be more inclusive in terms of thinking about what other groups are part of reconstructing the country at this time. And the Chinese are definitely an important part. Um, we have to be more inclusive in thinking about Cuba, right? And the Caribbean and, yeah. uh, and Asia itself and how that factors into reconstruction. Then we also have to expand as historians. And I don't know if she's speaking, you know, sort of directly to historians or more literate. Uh, literary scholars, but um, as historians, we need to be a little bit more expansive and inclusive when it comes to our source base. So she does a lot of transnational research, going to some of these different archives, reading literature. There's a whole chapter in there about science fiction, which I had I had no idea there was even this vast genre of science fiction where uh, scared white people write about, you know, a yellow invasion and what happens in the future when Chinese immigrants come here and they overrun the country and how that that reflects a lot of the same um, the same issues you hear in Congress when it comes to the Chinese Exclusion Act. So I really, I really like this book and I actually got quite a lot out of it in terms of reframing like my own discussions, my own lectures of of reconstruction for students. And I think it's it's a great way to do something that I, you know, we've already talked about this, but that I really like to do and I really love different books and uh, works that take those standard narratives and don't just sort of shoehorn, uh, Asian American history into it, but step back and, and really demonstrate how, um, it was very influential, right? And you can't have some of these narratives without also understanding how Asian Americans and Asian American history contributed.
0: Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, and, and maybe hopefully we can get, uh, uh, Ed Lee Wong on on this podcast um, to talk about that book too. Well, to conclude, I guess you know one of the, the the sort of traditional question that the the New Books Network asks of all of its guests is, is for us to learn a little bit about what you're working on next. Um, you've got uh, you've got the book that uh, you've just published, a new shade of just a different shade of justice, uh, Asian American Civil Rights in the South, uh, and your first book. So, uh, what's on your docket at the moment?
1: Um, so right now, I am I am working on a labor history of, um, Japanese American incarceration during World War II. So what I'm, what I'm basically trying to do, and these are, you know, I'm in the pretty, uh, the early stages of this yet, um, sort of uh, drafting and, and finishing up some research, but I am really interested in how, you know, most historians, uh, worth their salt will, will, look at Japanese American internment and say, okay, if we, if we look at how this term has been used, um, this is not internment. This is primarily wrongful imprisonment of, you know, thousands of American citizens who their only crime is they are, um, you know, sort of ethnically Japanese. So if we, if we admit that, um, then let's look at how Japanese Americans were used as laborers um, in the different prison, uh, different prison camps. So working on infrastructure projects that the government had basically wanted to complete for a while, but sort of lost the manpower to do that when the war broke out. Um, agricultural work, we have a huge shortage of aggregate of agricultural labors, um, during world war two, using some of, uh, Japanese Americans to do things like make camouflage nets when we couldn't use, uh, Japanese immigrants, because that would be a violation of the Geneva Convention. So, I'm I'm sort of putting these two concepts together: Japanese Americans as uh, the wrongfully incarcerated. You know, they basically had their citizenship stripped from them, and then how they are put to work for, if they are paid wages that are are far below, um, you know, the going rate. And that's if they if they are paid, and a lot of times they are. Uh, sort of encouraged to do work for, for practically for free to prove their loyalty. So, so basically what I'm doing is I'm bringing labor and then this idea of imprisonment, um, together to, to look at Japanese American incarceration during the war as part of a longer history of prison labor. And, uh, to see this as a, as an important moment in terms of how this idea, um, develops and some of the same conversations we're still, we're still having today about prison labor with targeting, um, specific racial or ethnic groups, you know, do, do the imprisoned have rights as laborers? You know, all of these different questions are, are in the back of my head as I, as I work on this.
0: Well, Steph, that sounds like a great project. And again, um, as with this one, a a timely and an important one. Uh, but for now, I I just want to thank you again for being on the show today, uh, for talking, uh, with us about your book, A Different Shade of Justice, Asian American Civil Rights in the South, uh, new, newly out from the University of North Carolina Press. Um, Steph, um, I hope that, uh, the listeners will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I know I certainly did, uh, both enjoy talking to you and reading the book. So thank you again.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That was my conversation with Stephanie Hinerschitz, author of A Different Shade of Justice, Asian American Civil Rights in the South, published in 2017 by the University of North Carolina Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books in Asian American Studies. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.